2: Today on First Lady and Friends, we had a great conversation with Jeremy Cunningham. He is the public policy director with the Alzheimer's Association Chapter of Utah. Got into his background, how he got to where he is, and all the things that uh, are related to our aging population and the Alzheimer's friends that we have in the state. Hope that you enjoyed as much as I did. Let's get proximate. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. We're uh, so excited to have a friend of mine that has been a dear friend for a long time, uh, Jeremy Cunningham, the public policy director with the Alzheimer's Association Utah chapter. Welcome, Jeremy.
0: Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here.
2: Yes. Yeah, so we So we go back a ways. We've just kind of been in the same Circles for yeah. for a while, and um, let's let's talk about you first of all. Uh, your background. Let's maybe just tell a little bit about your childhood, your growing up time. Uh, where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit about your family.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, I I grew up between Steubenville, Ohio, and Redmond, Washington. Mm. Um, When I was nine years old, my parents divorced and my mother and I moved to Washington State to be near my grandparents. And um, I, you know, there were a few years that were really tough, but I attribute a lot of my work ethic and things to growing up the way I did. I, I feel very fortunate to have had the family I have and things.
2: Yeah. So, did you have siblings? So, is it just you and your mom?
0: I have two older brothers that remained in Ohio. There was there was a big gap in ages between us. Okay.
2: And then, so so uh, you moved to Washington, and it was just your mom, and you were with your your grandparents
0: for for a time. Yeah. Okay. And then my my mom and my stepfather um, were married. And he's a terrific, he's a terrific man. He's a very good man. Mm.
2: And uh, so then you went to high school? I went to
0: high school in Redmond, Washington. I grew up on East Lake Sammamish Boulevard. Um, You know, I think high school looking back now is kind of an ugly time for most teenagers. But um, I think it's one of those things that Because I was involved in different groups, such as marketing groups like DECA and other groups, and I was pretty outgoing. And, you know, I don't look at myself as athletic now, but there was a time when I was somewhat athletic and, you know, growing up on a lake in Washington, looking back now, does it get any better?
2: Oh, yeah, that's got to be fantastic. I like I when we visit lakes or like a few years ago, we went we took the kids up to Montana And just spent a week on this little tiny—I mean, you could hardly call it a lake; it was more like a pond. But it was—I thought, my gosh, I could totally do this. I could just be right here. I remember we went out on this, on the little, uh, the little deck, and we laid there one night under the stars, and there was like this meteor shower. And it's a memory that I have of, of just laying there on the lake, you know, just watching the stars. It was it was amazing. So it, yes.
0: It's a pretty phenomenal thing to be able to live on a lake. And then um, my stepfather, as, as I got older, um, we had a boat mm-hmm. and we used to go sailing in Puget Sound. Oh, wow. And, you know, in the world we live in today, you know, back in the 80s, you didn't have to. To deal with a lot of that. And you thought, I remember growing up thinking life is so hard and so stressful. And I think about what the kids have to go through today.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I think, you know, we, I was having a conversation yesterday and I I hope to, to have a a new podcast guest because I met a new friend yesterday about, and he was talking about, um, you know, the struggles of, of the kids that we're seeing now and, just the difference in the, the way we grew up. Yeah. Um, I don't think we realize, I don't, I don't think we realize what we had. I don't think we realize what kids are dealing with now because we put ourselves in and say, well, just, you know, toughen up, get, you know, these kids are so, you know, so soft, but they're dealing with so much more than we ever could.
0: As you and I were talking before we started the segment, um, my background's national pr and marketing and it's phenomenal it's great that we have the internet in things things around the world are posted within minutes yeah. we we have technology and information given to us so quickly but there's a downside to that you know we're seeing more bullying we're seeing um, you know threats and possible threats over the internet now we get information on mass shootings and things, mm-hmm. and then, it, and I think I have a twenty four year old daughter that just graduated college, and you know I am grateful every day that she's out of college, yeah, you know, and that she's not being faced with some of these things right now, and that she has an opportunity to start a life as an adult and and kind of control her atmosphere a little bit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's go back. So you finished high school in Washington and then what?
0: And then I went on an LDS mission.
2: So were you had you joined the church in Ohio had your family joined, no, joined the actually, church? No, actually
0: we joined the church. I was 11 years old okay. when we joined the church. And my stepfather's family were LDS. Oh, okay. And and um I joined the church and like a lot of families went inactive. And then, uh, as I was finishing high school, got in with some friends, and um, got active. Went on an LDS mission. Where'd you go? I actually started in the Illinois Peoria mission. Okay, um, so
2: close to a little close to home-ish, right? I mean, at least home-ish in the, mid- the Midwest, Midwest, sort of. Yeah,
0: and um, and I had some health issues with my hearing, mm. and so they moved me to. California and I I helped open the California Riverside mission. And promptly after I came home from my mission, I moved to Utah. And I think my family was shocked and horrified the fact that I had only been home for a couple months and announced one day that I was moving to Utah and literally left three days later.
2: Wow. Coming for school or just decided this is where you wanted to be?
0: Coming for school and wanting... I had friends here Mm -hmm. and I wanted to ski and hang out with my friends. And this seemed like a great place. And that was 30 years ago, December 2nd.
2: Wow. Wow. So talk a little bit about December 2nd. You got here on December 2nd and you really had nothing.
0: I... I... I look back now and think you were insane, Jeremy. Um, I moved here literally with three hundred dollars to my name, and and I remember my grandmother telling me if I if I moved to Utah, then she was going to financially cut me off. My <laughs> grandfather had been an executive with a bank, and so you know our family was fortunate. But looking back, I literally moved here with. My best friend, Wesley, and two bags. I had a place to stay for a few months until I could get on my feet. And I literally worked at a tuxedo store and I walked to work and then I worked at the Joseph Smith Memorial Building in the kitchen. Mm. And I worked two jobs, sometimes two or three jobs. And um, I was fortunate. With my schooling and things, I got a break. Um, I met a gentleman that gave me a break, and I was his personal assistant to an international market research firm that was based here in Utah. And I realized how much I loved political work. I loved marketing, but I liked the research side of things. Mm. And that was really my first you know, career, job, you know, and I was in my early 20s.
3: Wow.
2: So finish college where?
0: You know, I did not finish college. Okay, so you started. I I started at the University of Washington. Okay. And I actually don't really talk about that, you know, but um, I'm not embarrassed by it, but it's one of those things, I think, for people that haven't finished college, that that's something that one day I'm going to go back. Yeah. And and do.
2: Yeah. Or not. I mean, I I just think life's journeys are are so diverse and we learn, we are educated in so many different ways.
0: Well, I'm glad that I had the foundation Mm -hmm. of some college. Having said that, I've been very fortunate in my career.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I can see that. Um, So- you let's go back a little bit before uh-huh. we we started talking on air. We we you were telling me a little bit about your your grandma. You have some really interesting family history or family stories. Um, tell tell me a little bit about.
0: That. Yeah, um, we were talking before the segment started that um, I'm from Steubenville, Ohio, home of Dean Martin. You know, this time of year, Dean Martin's really well known for his Christmas classics, and my grandmother actually dated Dean Martin, <laughs> and um, my grandmother was a an amazing, an amazing, amazing woman. Uh, she was one of the first women in the state of Washington to start selling real estate. Um, she didn't even have a real estate license at the time, you know, and. And she, you know, she went back and got her real estate license. Obviously, but she um, she was a real estate broker. But going back to Dean Martin, um, Dean Martin introduced my grandparents. My grandfather was a friend of his, and she would always say, "Dean spent too much time on his hair," <laughs> and as soon as your grandfather walked in. I looked at him and I knew this was the man I was going to marry. Uh. And I think they were married for about 170 years. <laughs> um and they were an amazing couple. Mm. Their work ethic was phenomenal.
2: What do you think I mean I'm always amazed at, at at couples and and you know the success that they they had as you know in their marriage but you know, what do you think attributes to that that longevity or that that you know the way to connect for that long
0: well i never really saw my grandparents argue Mm. i'm sure they did from time to time actually after my grandfather died my grandmother told me that they had had four major arguments in their marriage (laughs) (laughs) and but they never did that publicly Mm -hmm. and um my grandmother's name And we would call her Elwilda, the patron saint of our family, the (laughs) blessed Elwilda. Um, They were very Catholic. And it was really interesting because my grandfather, who dearly loved my grandmother, would say, I don't think Elwilda would like me to talk about that. And his friends would be, you know, kind of bagging on their wives a little bit or complaining. But he never did, mm. and he truly respected her. And there was a time in his life where, because of a heart issue, um, that's what caused her to start selling real estate. Mm. And she would always say he was such a good provider throughout his entire life. But when they were young, she was faced with he was faced with a heart issue, and she decided that they were going to make a change in their family and she was going to work. And this is back in the 1940s and fifties.
3: Yeah.
0: And, and she didn't want to be a society woman anymore.
3: Mm.
0: She wanted to make sure that her husband had a quality life and that her daughter had a quality life.
2: Mm.
0: She's a phenomenal woman, tough, but phenomenal.
2: I love that. Um, I think I, one of my, Favorite things to do is look back in my family history and find the, um, you know, not that we don't have strong men in in my family history, obviously we do, but I I love looking back at the strong women because um, I think the odds were a little bit more stacked against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very much so in the in those in those early days, and so I I always love drawing strength from from the women um, in my family history that. I just think, you know, we talk about kids and, and their ability now now to to really connect and find meaning in their lives and find ways to um, disconnect in a lot of ways from social media and and the and the scary things in the world that face them every day that they they wake up to and see on their phones every every day and really look back and find the strength in their own family history. It's powerful.
0: I- It is powerful. And my family, just quickly, my family were Jews that came to Mm -hmm. America in 1905 and assimilated into the Catholic Church because they wanted a better quality of life for their children. And they Mm -hmm. hid the fact that they were Jewish. But one quick thing that I find really interesting, a strong man will allow – not allow, will –
2: Encourage. Encourage. Yeah, yeah
0: their spouses or partner to be strong. And I think that's something that complements each other. There was never a competition Mm. in my family. We were all in for each other or we were all out. (laughs)
2: Yeah, Yeah. no, I love that. Um, This has been really fascinating, a a great start to our conversation. I do want to get into the work you're doing now, and we'll do that when we come right back.
1: Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.
2: We're back here with Jeremy Cunningham. You've done a lot of work um, with the Alzheimer's Association. You're the yeah. public policy director now. Let's talk a little bit uh, before this. So you, you've you had some really incredible jobs You talked about some of those very first ones that that you experienced here in Utah. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about where you went from there. I know you talked about PR. So you've you've been in the PR marketing. How did that happen?
0: Well, I've been in the PR marketing world from the time that I worked for um, an international market research firm that did political research. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, they literally did telephone calling and mail pieces back Mm -hmm. then. So – um, it was a great foundation on a national level to be able to work with true marketers and and get a, a really strong understanding. And then at one point in my career, I went to work for Capital Broadcasting in a fellow named John Webb. Um, John Webb was a well-known radio uh, owner. He owned a few radio stations. And I went to work for Capital Broadcasting, um, KBZN, The Breeze. And The Breeze was a smooth jazz station. And it gave me a different perspective of where the tire really hit the pavement. And during that time, John really – as tough as John was, he taught me the business, um, he actually used to have me making collection calls at one point, and I was, you know, I was the marketing director, and, and but you know, he always used to say, um, "Let's eat their dog before their dog eats our dog," <laughs> <laughs> and I I kind of laugh at that now, but I look back at that time and think, "Wow, to be given that knowledge of, you know." I understood the market research, but I didn't understand about how a commercial got made and to see the production side and then to see the networking and the in the communication side and how you bring in communicators to sell a message, and to sell a brand. And it st- I started focusing on myself, on my own brand. What did I want to do after I left Capital Broadcasting? I had been there for about five years or so. And um, I had the opportunity to continue to work for John for some time, but he would allow me to pick up other things. And he saw that I had talent and that I started working with people at Sundance when when the Sundance Film Festival came in and when people needed public relations and they needed a front person and they needed handling – um, different entertainers would come in for Sundance and throughout the year for movies and things like that, and um, that allowed me to to get more exposure and to really start handling the PR day to day PR for entertainment types.
2: Wow, that's so interesting! Um, so you went from s- sort of the research to the marketing to then the beyond
0: (laughs) right to the, to the branding and, and relationship side of PR. PR. Yeah. Okay. And, um, I, I look back and I know we've talked about looking back and things, but in a retrospect, I just see how fortunate I've been in my career and, During my time at Capital Broadcasting, they had a station called KLO. It was one of the older stations in Utah. And there was an entertainer. Her name was Joan Rivers, the comedian, Mm -hmm. Joan Rivers. (laughs) And she wasn't able to get on our KLO programming. But she had a great program. But she could be out there a little bit. She was a little rough, and um, so I sent an appointment for her, a phone appointment for her and the station owner, and before it was said and done, her program was picked up by our station, and she contacted me and said, I'm having a hard time getting my program across the country. Would you be willing to contract with me? And I worked with her assistants and things, and I started getting her bookings Wow, for her show, and that led to working with her on various projects for a number of years.
2: What's she like?
0: Truly, she was one of the most amazing mentors and and individuals I've ever met in my life. You know, people um saw her very public and she would make crass comments and things like that but this is a woman that came into comedy a little later in life she had a daughter a little later in life um she really was one of the first women to make it big in a man's world and um is As you and I had been talking, one of the best pieces of of advice I was given in my life was don't ask someone to do a job you're not willing to do yourself. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah.
0: And um, I think about that. I think about that every day. What am I willing to do? Where are my boundaries? What am I willing to do, and how hard am I willing to work?
2: Yeah, she seemed like a really hard worker. I mean, and any, you know anybody in the, that business, you have to be.
0: I say, bless them. Yeah, you know I mean that that is a rough business to be in, and for her to come back time after time and recreating herself time after time. And there was a side of her that people never really saw. And that's the charitable side Mm -hmm. that she gave hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars away anonymously. Mm -hmm. She sent kids to school. She made sure that shut-ins, our aging community, and those living with HIV um, had meals. And there were times that she would deliver the meals herself just to go out a couple times a year and and do those things. And – she respected people, whether that was a waiter or an actor. And many times they'd end up being the same thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I I think, uh, you know, I, over the many years that we've been in public service, I always think about people um, always have an idea of who you are based on what they've seen or what they've read or, you know, your social media posts your social or media posts. you but have
0: such a glamorous life, exactly. or you know, this person or that. And person. I think
2: when, when Spencer and I always love to surprise people, I think mm-hmm. they have an idea of what a governor and a first lady should be like or, you know, and, and then when we're, I don't know, I just like to surprise people when they realize that we're just actual humans and whatnot. <laughs>
0: You know, I think that's the really interesting thing that successful people don't realize they're successful.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Well, we still need to talk about Alzheimer's and what you're doing now. So we'll do that when we come right back. We're back here with Jeremy Cunningham. He's the public policy director with the Alzheimer's Association, Utah chapter. Um, I... We, I promise we're going to talk about Alzheimer's. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, it's more, I, there's more to it than that. So I want to talk about you, yeah. you you're there now. Uh, what, what got you here? What, what made you interested in this um, area?
0: Well, I had been doing quite a bit of PR work and political work, and I was working for Salt Lake County in the election department, doing PIO work and, and election clerking that was the official title.
2: It's very important we all know now. Right. <laughs> we didn't always know that, but we all know how important the election clerks are now.
0: Right. <laughs> and a good public information officer, that's honest. Yes, you know?
2: absolutely. And
0: and that's that's the really great thing is Utah has some of the safest election processes in the country.
2: Thank you. Thank you for saying that. We know that. And thank you for saying that. (laughs) I mean, there's
0: a lot of security and a lot of work that goes into that. And being able to present that message and feel people make people feel secure in that, you know, is important because it is a freedom that we have.
2: Well, and and Spencer always said, because obviously he was the lieutenant governor and and was over elections. And he always says, you know, this it, it doesn't it. You don't have to have a. An election that's, I mean, even if the election's safe and we all know, or that we, you know, that we see that, if people don't feel it's safe, it's secure, then that's a problem.
0: That's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: you're exactly right. The PIO stuff is really important.
0: You know, so um, in 2016, I saw the handwriting on the wall after we had some individuals come in wanting to drain the swamp literally coming into the clerk's office threatening people draining the swamp and i needed something different i needed out of the political world which i love yeah and for me personally i'm an unaffiliated um i am an unaffiliated citizen when it comes yes. to party alignment <laughs> But, um, having said that I needed something different and I didn't know what that was going to be, but I, um, was told about a possible job with the Alzheimer's association and they needed someone to do some communications and public policy work. And this was new to the Utah chapter and they needed someone that could open some doors and, and help people understand what that Alzheimer's is just one of 26 dementias Mm. and it is the most prevalent in our country and things like that.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So interesting. Um, I, I think a lot of us have had experience maybe with grandparents, parents, friends, neighbors, aunts, uncles, um, I think it's
0: touched most of us
2: in there in, in some way.
0: And if it hasn't, it will. if it it hasn't it will um, our former governor uh, Governor Herbert and 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 your husband Governor Cox used to say and I've heard both of them say the silver tsunami's coming yeah Utah has people are aware that Utah has a very young population having said that it also has one of the oldest populations per capita in the United States so when other people's states are in healthcare are looking more like a, um, a funnel. Ours is very much shaped like an hourglass
3: mm, interesting. where we
0: have younger people, but we have a great deal of an aging population that's aging quickly. Mm. The boomers are, are here.
2: And we live longer. Is that why? Because we're generally healthier. We're, generally, we're, we're one of the top most yeah, healthy states. We
0: are one of the healthier states. But we love our sugar. We do indeed. And we love, you know, diabetes is strong <laughs> in our state. Truly. But generally, um, because of the lifestyle and activity, individuals in Utah live much longer. Yeah. yeah.
2: So what are you seeing as far as like public policy? What what's your main what what's your message? What are we talking? How well, do we talk about Alzheimer's?
0: In the last uh, six years that I've been with the Alzheimer's Association. Um, we have put together an Alzheimer's state plan. Um, we are leading the country in many ways. We've seen 14 pieces of legislation. Now, that's either a bill here within the state or an appropriation. 14 different separate pieces of legislation get passed for the betterment of aging adults, whether that's Alzheimer's or Aging adults, um, because there are so many issues that overlap between aging and dementia.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, what do you what do you wish people knew about aging adults and dementia and Alzheimer's? What do you what are you what's what's a big message that we need to to be aware of?
0: You know, as Utahns, we need to do a better job we have a phenomenal system of area agencies on aging and things but we are in a point in our state where um we need to make things more accessible for our aging population mm-hmm. in every city and town and make sure that you know we don't have enough gerontologists mm-hmm. in the state of utah um Training of our first responders. What happens when an aging adult who is living with dementia or Alzheimer's goes missing? We have a silver alert. We have one of the best silver alerts um, in the nation. But what happens when someone is in crisis, when an aging adult is in crisis? You know, um, we're finally getting to a point where we're teaching about all uh, autism and things, but we need to be teaching what happens. When this aging adult who is confused or has cognitive decline is in a crisis situation. Mm. And then as we're aging, we need more public guardians um, because some families just aren't set up to take care of an aging adult. Or would you want some of these families taking care of their loved ones? I wouldn't. (laughs) Hopefully my daughter, you know, gets with the picture. But (laughs) – you know, um, we need more public guardians and we need more APS workers. I mean, these people are on the front lines and so are our great um, first responders. Utah is doing things that other states can't do and we're doing it for a fraction of the cost.
2: Wow, that's incredible.
0: Well, I think it's that Utah pioneering spirit, make do or do without. We build Coalition in the state. We have a coordinating Alzheimer's coordinating council. We have a very active um, adult um, aging board and things like that. Um, we're just on the cusp of some really great things, but these things have to happen.
2: Yeah, talk a little bit. Have you done much with? Uh, we had a conversation about youth and and the struggles that that our youth are facing. Um, we know from a lot of research and um, in, in Senator Ben Sasse's book, he talks about the, the connection between generations and how critically important that is for mental health and it, societal health. How are we connecting in, these youth uh, with, our, so with have, our aging population? We
0: have brain health. We have the physical health. And then we have the mental health. And we know that if you can lower your blood pressure, lower that top number down to about 135 or below, you've cut your Alzheimer's risk by half. Okay. Wow, I did not know that. But there's something else that we haven't really addressed as a society: isolation. Yes, isolation is huge. For those living with the disease, I mean, we're going to see an increase of 23.5% from 2020 to 2025 in Alzheimer's cases. And we're seeing it in diverse populations. Those are the populations that are getting hit the worst, the African-American community, the LGBTQ community, the Latin community. And so it's not – it has to be a holistic approach. We have to do a better job as a society integrating grandma or grandpa or our neighbors or our extended relatives, we have to be our brother's keepers. Mm. I hate to use that term, but it's really a great term because bringing someone that is aging to youth, you know, we've seen studies throughout the country where they are taking a preschool or a daycare system and and bringing it with um, bringing it to an assisted living and having cross um, socialization happening, yeah. and it's phenomenal.
2: Yeah, I we have a, a really great example of that here in Salt Lake City. We have the neighborhood house exactly, and they I was have, just going to mention yeah,
0: the neighborhood they have house,
2: the adult daycare with the with the pre-k and early childhood and and elementary age kids who are interacting and having activities together and i i watched it for a minute i i have to say too that i i I guess like my next question is what did we see during the pandemic i imagine i can imagine what we saw i mean the isolation was hard anyway pre-covid What are we seeing as a result of COVID with these patients?
0: We were seeing an enormous amount of deaths with individuals living with dementia. And I don't think we will get accurate numbers for some time. You know, um, let me give you an example. So caregivers. Let's talk about caregivers. Um, I'm talking about unpaid caregivers like yourself or many other – and I – say the term women because 75% of the caregivers in the state of Utah are women, mm. 75% little, just a little under 75% of those living with Alzheimer's are women. Mm. This is a disease that happened to be attacking the female population. Mm. And there's over $2 billion a year in unpaid care given by Unsung heroes, you know, and during COVID, they didn't get breaks. Yeah. And many people chose to bring their family members home from assisted livings and long-term care centers because of the isolation, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: of the confusion, of the not understanding. And Care centers were doing the very best they could in our state. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, S- Spencer's grandma is in a care center, and I don't know how many COVID outbreaks she's lived through. <laughs> we're shocked. She's ninety six, and yeah, not healthy <laughs> at all. <laughs> we're we're just shocked that she, you know, she has some some dementia and. Yeah. and it, it's very confusing and they don't know why family members aren't visiting and they don't understand why they have and to why stay they can
0: visit they have to stay in their rooms and and you know um, I look at the caregivers and I'm so grateful for them yeah. Utah actually has been doing a really great study on caregiving with dr Beth Bouth, okay um, up at Utah State University which actually just Got funding for an Alzheimer's research center, first of its kind in the state of Utah.
2: Fantastic. Go Aggies. Yes.
0: <laughs> and so we're really excited about, you know, the future and what's happening in our state.
2: What talk a little bit about research and maybe medication and things that you see maybe coming down the pipe on on that can address this.
0: Yes. Um We, in the next 18 months, we are going to see three new medications being released through the FDA and the CDC. And so I believe, and I know people would say, oh, you're being very Pollyanna like, but I believe that we will see a cure Mm -hmm. for Alzheimer's and some of the other dementias in my lifetime. Now, these are the first steps, these are some of the first drugs. Um, it could be that it's going to be a therapy, a combination of things, but it's, it's coming together.
2: That that's fantastic.
0: I really want to talk about this time of year and Christmas yes, just yes. really quickly. I love this time of year and it's important for families. It's important for people that are living on their own, but especially this time of year, in preparing um, for an aging adult that could be, or is living with dementia Um, families because they don't come together often. You know, they come together at this time of year through Thanksgiving and the end of the year through new years. Um, If you're living with dementia and you're a care provider, you're seeing the day to day changes, but with the holidays, and holidays are stressful on caregivers. Mm. I think that um, being able to talk about it and not be fearful and not live in shame that an individual has cognitive decline, or from the last time, you know, we saw Grandma; she's got cognitive some, her personality's changed. The new reality is this is who Grandma is today. This is her reality, and the holidays can still be special, incredibly special. Maybe scale back what we're doing and 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 explain to our families this is what we're capable of doing this year
2: That's such a great thought um and how do we how do we think about the balance between you know these holiday? times, these times where the family gets together and the health of our aging population. I know my 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 parents were, you know, at some point during COVID, they were like, we don't care. We'd rather be with our family well, I than think worry that's, about that.
0: I think that's really a choice that has to be made by yeah. each individual family. Yeah. But the stigma of, oh, I've got to do all the shopping and I've got to make sure that the tree looks this way and yeah. the cookies are made and the... You know, whatever those traditions are, it's more important to be together as a family than maybe all the trappings and pressure of Christmas and making sure that that our loved ones are taken care of and that they feel secure Mm. and taken care of wherever they are on their dementia of journey or journey of dementia, excuse me, (laughs) journey of dementia Um. Making sure that their needs are met and that your needs are met as a caregiver.
3: Mm,
2: I love that thought of, of just make, making it simple. Just making sure that you are thinking about the things that really matter. That's such a great thought. I think for all of us, no matter what situation we're in, um, I think we can get caught up in perfection. I think we can get caught up in um, the Instagram Stories and pictures and life and perfect, yeah perfectness i, I, I don 't know
0: that you have to have the perfect holiday card, yeah, you know to have serenity yes
2: <laughs> that that great words to live by, absolutely thank you, and this has been such a great conversation. I so appreciate your time and and this incredible um, awareness that we can have for for our friends, for our family members that are experiencing. The aging process in a lot of ways. So, thank you so much for all that you do.
0: Thank you for this opportunity.
2: A gun in the face. Then, all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up.
0: They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today.
2: Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela.
0: They said, You need to give us your phone and